and welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Joseph Pierce, a visiting professor of literature at Ave Maria University in Florida and a visiting chair of Catholic Studies at Thomas More College of Liberal Arts in New Hampshire. He's also the editor of the St. Austin Review, senior instructor with Homeschool Connections, and a host of documentaries on EWTN. His latest book is The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful, History in Three Dimensions, and he's written many others, including The Quest for Shakespeare and The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde. He is series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, which includes a volume he edited on The Picture of Dorian Gray. I could go on, but if you want more, check out his website at jpierce.co. That's J-P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-O, not dot com, dot C-O. He joins us by Zoom as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Joseph, welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Why is The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde a great book? Well, it's certainly one of the greatest novels of uh, what G.K. Chesterton called the Victorian age in literature. And in some sense, we can say that the Victorian age in literature was a golden age of literature, with some, some wonderful literature being written, both in terms of poetry and prose, and sort of the golden age of the novel as well, we might say. So the fact that it holds its own with the, the, the other great works of, of, of that time speaks for itself. It stood the test of time. That's the other thing. A great book, uh, like a great wine, uh, improves with age. So so, you know, if a, if a book's up to date, it's probably going to be out of date because, as C.S. Lewis says, fashions are always coming and going, but mostly going. But a great book stands the test of time, and it's certainly done that. We will talk about the story, the characters, whether this is a moral novel. Also, who is the author, Oscar Wilde, the enigma of Oscar Wilde? Let's begin, though, with the preface to The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's a series of aphorisms, and it starts with this line, quote, the artist is the creator of beautiful things, unquote. Soon it adds, quote, there is no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all, unquote. And it goes on a little longer and ends with this, quote, all art is quite useless, unquote. Joseph, what's going on here? What does this preface say, and why does it precede the novel? Yeah, well, the, the, the preface is, is very widely quoted, especially the line you did quote about there's no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written, that is all. Let's discuss what the preface is. I think it's an, an enigma. I think it's deliberately enigmatic. I th also think it's a mask. It's actually meant to uh, obscure the, the, the obvious morality of the novel. Wilde himself says in, in correspondence after the novel's published in order to defend it from charges of its being immoral, that on the contrary, its morality is too obvious. But the, um, the thing about the preface is that we can, if you pluck these individual aphorisms apart from the rest, um, you can give um, a misleading understanding of things. So first of all, I would say, I, I'm, I'm prepared to agree with this controversial thing. There's no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all on one level. And that's what I sometimes say that there are four types of books, logically speaking. There are good, good books. There are good, bad books. 
There are bad, good books, and there are bad, bad books. In the sense that a book can be good in terms of its literary quality and good in terms of its philosophical and theological morality uh, uh, and, and truth, uh, or it can be good at one and bad at the other. So it is true that on the level of literary quality, that is something which is independent of morality. But the, that doesn't mean that a great work of art should not express goodness, truth and beauty. Uh, and if it fails to do so, then it's, it, it, it is actually deficient and defective. But I, one other thing I would, if you bear with me, because we have that here, but then you also have those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. Well, that's a moral statement. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are the cultivated. For these, there is hope. I think then another one I like, like here, all art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. In other words, to, to read is perilous. It's, it's, it's a quest. It's dangerous. Uh, and it's dangerous because it's going to bring us into the presence of good and evil. And if, if we're in the presence of good and evil, we are ipso facto in the presence of morality. So the, the one the one statement is always quoted by iconoclasts. There's no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. It's taken out of context from the rest of the preface, gives a misleading view both of what the preface says, but also of what perhaps Oscar Wilde is, is, is meaning to say, although I think he's meaning to be uh, wearing a mask as well. So let's jump into the story of the picture of Dorian Gray. Once we get past this preface, which takes about a minute to read, but then you can talk about it forever, we get into the actual story of the novel itself, the picture of Dorian Gray, published in 1891. And chapter one kicks off with Lord Henry Wotton, reclining on a couch, smoking, gazing at a portrait, along with the portrait's painter, Basil Hallward. Who are these guys, and what is the picture they're looking at? Yeah, so basically, although there were, there were other minor characters in the novel, that there are three, there's a triumvirate of, of key characters, and the, the first two, we are, we, as you say, we introduced uh, immediately, and the picture actually is of the third. So all, all three characters, in some sense, are brought to the fore, right at the outset. So we have Lord Henry Watton, who is um, a cynic, the philosopher of cynicism, should we say. And then we have Basil Hallward, who's uh, who's an artist. And then we have Dorian Gray, who's a young, naive man at the beginning of the novel. Uh, and we see how uh, both the work of art um, and the words of Lord Henry Watton uh, are catalytic in changing Dorian Gray from this naive uh, innocence at the beginning of, of, of the book to a corrupt, morally iconoclastic and destructive and self-destructive character by the end. We'll get to Dorian Gray in a moment. I want to stick with Lord Henry Wotton because in this opening scene, we get one of the book's first great quips, one of the great all-time quips of Oscar Wilde. We've already learned from the preface he has a gift for aphorism. We get a quip then from, from Watton where he says, quote, there's only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. Again, wonderful. And, 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 and you know, it's often the case, of course, bad characters sometimes have some of the best lies. And it's an especially case 
the case in uh, the works of Oscar Wilde. We see also Patton, uh, for instance, The Fool in King Lear, um, that, you know, he gets some of the best lines, but they're not the deepest or the wisest lines. Uh, um, so here um, we we have these, the, many of the wittiest lines are coming from the, from, the cynic, from the cynic. We do have to, however, distance out of the author from the character and not, because often, you know, if you have a dictionary of quotations, it will, it will say the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about Oscar Wilde. Well, that's actually not the case, right? It's Lord Henry Watton that said it. So there is a, there's a critical distance needs to be maintained between the author and the character. And, and we have to judge uh, the author's perspective as regards what the character's saying in the light of the whole work, the integrity and entirety of the whole novel. And uh, you know, once we do that, we see that if anything that Oscar Wilde is condemning that viewpoint. Watton reminds me a little bit here of Milton Satan. He's got the best lines and he's a tempter like the devil. Here's another line we get from him. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Another line that's often attributed to Oscar Wilde is really this character. What do we learn about Henry Watton? What's he trying to do here? Yeah, well, I, th I think that, you know, he is up to a point, the uh, Oscar Wilde's own alter ego, I mean, Wilde says this somewhere, that, you know, Wilde did take great delight in shocking people with his wit at the, at, you know, in the salons and at the, the, the dinner tables of society. You know, we had visions of his wife, who's uh, simultaneously delighted and horrified by uh, her husband's display of wit. So uh, we do have, in one sense, you know, that uh, Oscar Wilde's alter ego emerging in this wit um, and cynicism of Lord Henry Watton, but it's not Wilde's better side. We might even be tempted to, to employ an analogy with and a metaphor from another Victorian novel that Lord Henry Watton's the Mr. Hyde side of Oscar Wilde's character. So who's the Dr. Jekyll side in the picture of Dorian Gray? Is there one? Yes, well, I think Basil Hallward. Basil Hallward was the artist, and certainly Oscar Wilde, you know, says in in his letter uh, he wrote from prison, uh, was published as De Profundis to um, to Lord Alfred Douglas, that you, know, you knew what my art was to me. It was above all else, to which all other loves are like red wine to ditch water. So Wilde took his art seriously and took the fact that he considered himself to be an artist. Seriously, so I see, think that we the the, the the Dr. Jekyll character, the the more benevolent and, and benign aspect of Oscar Wilde's personality, is evident in the character of Basil Hallward. So we meet those two guys, the the Jekyll and Hyde of of Oscar Wilde in that first scene, and there's a portrait of Dorian Gray. He's our title character, the picture of Dorian Gray. Who is Dorian Gray? How do we meet him in the novel? Yeah, well, obviously, we meet him, first of all, through the picture. Like Lord Henry and Basil talk about the picture. But then he emerges to be a model because uh, the painter's not pictured, to stand there posing while Basil Hallward continues with the portrait. The thing that's very interesting, by the way, the opening scenes of the novel, that it's set in a garden. And I think that's symbolically that's 
significant. They go back to the preface. All art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go, go beneath the surface do so at their peril. Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. Well, in the very opening lines, we have a, a, a garden, the, the studio's on the edge of the garden, the garden's out there, and, and look, there's a rich odour of roses, a heavy scent of lilac, a delicate perfume of the pink flowering thorn. And there's the laburnum, which is beautiful outwardly, but poisonous inwardly. Again, a symbolism there. What we have here is the innocent victim, you might even say, entering the garden where he's going to be tempted. And you, and you, you, you already mentioned Milton's Satan. I do think that our, an analogies can be drawn between Milton's Satan and the character of Lord Henry Watton and the role he plays, especially in this opening chapter. So how does Dorian Gray get himself into trouble? You mentioned he's a victim here. Uh, there's a portrait of him. That's nice. He's he's handsome. Nice picture of Dorian. What happens to him? First of all, I think that the, the, the picture serves as a metaphor for art in general, in, in the broadest sense, including literature. Um, it, it sort of serves the same role. You know, in, in Hamlet, for instance, the, the mousetrap, the play within the play, so it's a play within the play, uh, which serves as a metaphor for art, that the role that the play itself plays, right, within society. So this uh, this picture of Dorian Gray, I think, is representative of, of art. It shows us ourselves. Um, but in the, this case, there's this also Faustian pact that Dorian Gray enters into. We're told that he throws himself down as if he were praying. So, you know, and this, this is a prayer to the devil, or is this a, a prayer to God that's answered in a way that's meant to be cautionary uh, and lessons to be learned, which are not, um, to Dorian Gray's uh, self-destruction? But basically, the, what, what sets it up is he wishes that he would stay young and beautiful and that the painting would grow old. And, of course, what happens is he only remains outwardly beautiful because what the picture shows him is what he really looks like. If you see him from metaphysically, spiritually, you're looking, when you look, Dorian Gray looks at the picture, he's looking in a magical, miraculous mirror that shows him what he really looks like in terms of his soul. And so Dorian gains ageless beauty. He starts out handsome and he's going to stay handsome. He's not going to grow older. What does he go on to do? What kind of life does he now lead? First of all, of course, Lord Henry Wotton, the, 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 the Miltonian Satan figure, shall we say, convinces him uh, that the only thing that matters is youth. That when you lose your youth, when you use your beauty, uh, you lose everything. And so first of all, he's poisoned by that philosophy that youth is everything. And then having been poisoned by the philosophy, he, he desires that he remains young forever and that the picture gets old instead. But what actually happens is that he, through curiosity, I mean, Thomas Aquinas, you know, there's a difference between scientia, knowledge, and curiositas, curiosity, that curiosity kills the cat. Well, curiosity ultimately kills Dorian Gray. In other words, he wants new experiences, the desire for something he hasn't experienced before. And it's a bit like a drug, that it's addictive. And, and the, the, the simpler pleasures uh, no longer satisfy. So you have to get uh, more perverse, you have to get darker and deeper in, 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 into the realm of addictive passion in order to get the fix, in order to get the high. And so he, he basically ends up as an addict. I mean, St. Paul tells us that we become slaves to sin. Uh, and he finds it ultimately, even not the, the few occasions, which I think are very powerful moments in the novel, when he comes close to repenting. 
So there is an element of free will. He's not doesn't become such an addict that he no longer has any freedom. But certainly the more he he gets himself deeper and deeper into sin, the less and less he appears to be able to break himself out of that cycle of addiction. And yet he's looking good the whole time. For 18 years, he leads a life of vice and debauchery. What's happening to the painting as he does this? The painting gets uglier, and you see it from the very beginning when, when he basically looks disdainfully at Sybil Vane that leads to her suicide, the first blood he has on his hands. Um, first of all, there's, there's, just, there's just a hint of a wicked smile uh, on the face, and then there's blood on the hands, um, and basically it's transformed over a period of time uh, to something which is so hideously ugly that Dorian Gray can't bear to look at it. He locks it away upstairs in the attic. But of course, what he's seeing is the reality that the, the superficial surface is only a mask under which the picture shows who the real Dorian Gray is. Does he learn anything from this? You think you're you're looking at the painting, it's getting uglier and uglier. It's kind of a supernatural element. One of the most obvious Christian morals that emerge from the novel is when Lord Henry Watton says, merely with a desire to shock, now, what's it they say about a man can um, gain the whole world but lose his soul? And then he says, well, of course, I don't believe that. But, but but then Dorian Gray said, well, I do. I know it. The soul is a, is, is, is a, is a reality and we have, we have to look after the soul because the picture is a reflection of his soul and he knows it. And he knows what he's doing to himself and his soul in the, in the lifestyle he's living because the picture serves as a reflection of that spiritual reality. But then he also sees that it, it's, it represents his conscience. And that's, that, that's ultimately, of course, uh, his final decision. All he has to do, he thinks, is to destroy the picture. Because if he destroyed the picture, that would be the killing of his conscience. And if he kills his conscience, he can then do what he likes without feeling bad about it. And that's his final, ultimately diabolical choice. The picture haunts him. He recognizes what's going on here. Does he try to reform himself, try to do better, redeem himself? There are moments when, when he does, when he wants to, when he tries to. And, and every time Lord Henry Watton is there to sneer and to basically tell him that, that it's an illusion and a delusion, that he's not really repenting. He can't really repent. His repentance is a pose. And once again, and this is the great one of the great tragedies of the novel, is the way that Dorian Gray is corrupted by bad philosophy. Right? Basically, Lord Henry Wharton, in many ways, represents the philosopher. And, and his philosophy is poisonous and ultimately nihilistic. What I find very interesting, by the way, is that he's not just a persona for abstraction for philosophy, however, he's deeper than that. And the only time that we see Lord Henry Wharton unobserved, in other words, by himself, um, and, and not knowing anyone's watching him, he looks dreadfully bored. His philosophy through the agency of his disciple, Dorian Gray, ruins the life of his sister. He himself, by the end of the novel, is divorced from his wife. So it's not as if this uh, philosopher can be detached, as he hopes he is. We, we don't see him doing anything but speaking. He does nothing, so to speak, but his ideas are themselves not merely destructive, but self-destructive. They destroy his family, they destroy his marriage, and obviously he's going to be impacted by that. So when he's by himself, 
He's not entertaining, um, not being the uh, the enfant terrible. He's bored. He's suffering from the from the, uh, the the thing that besets all decadence. It's a recurring motif in decadent poetry, decadent novels in, in France and, and, and Dorian Gray. Ennui, boredom. But basically, they need to get the next fix of, 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 of something which is a distraction because the absence of that distraction is boredom. And that's the ultimate price, a life of decadence, a life of cynicism, which lacks gratitude. And if you, if you lack gratitude because you're a cynic, because you're pr- proud, basically, cynicism is really a manifestation of pride. If, you have, if, you, if you're proud, you lack gratitude. If you, if you lack gratitude, you don't have a sense of wonder. And it's only the sense of wonder that allows us to contemplate and dilate into the presence of the real. We, you know, I see parallels between the picture of Dorian Gray, the ugliness of it, and the character of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. Because Gollum also is an outward manifestation of the shriveling of the soul. At the end of the novel, Dorian Gray attacks the picture, tries to destroy it. Joseph, what happens and what are we to make of that? Basically, what it shows at the end is that we're dealing with the supernatural, we're dealing with the diabolical, but also we're dealing ultimately with something where, but as, as again, come back to Middle Earth again here, as Samwise Gamgee says, above all shadows rides the sun. Because at the end, justice is done. So, you know, I sometimes say that, you know, we, we know the phrase, uh, if you give the devil enough rope, he'll hang himself, but he'll hang you first. In other words, at the end of the novel, Dorian Gray, in, in trying to destroy the, paper, the painting, which is his conscience, it is his soul, when you kill your soul, you kill yourself. So we have Dorian Gray metamorphoses into the physical appearance of what the, the picture was showing because it's reality. But he's hung, hanged himself at the end, right? He's Basically, his life of self-indulgence has proved to be self-destructive. Give the devil enough rope, he'll hang himself. But in the process, there are, he's left a whole trail of innocent victims behind him. It's, it's the innocent also that suffer from the recklessness of, uh, of sin. Is there any kind of redemption for Dorian at the end? I think that you know that, that we're not left with any real freedom in the, in the way that the, uh, the the plot unfolds. Uh, that he dies absolutely resolute in the choice for evil. Judgment is is then falls upon him, and we see that uh, he has become physically, in the incarnate sense, the ugly, hideous thing which he the, the picture had shown him throughout so i don't think we are given any real freedom to believe that dorian gray can has been redeemed or can be redeemed we've mentioned the question is the novel moral and the answer obviously is yes and one of the criticisms of the picture of dorian gray is that the morals too obvious now i'll say when i read the picture of dorian gray as a, a, a teenager many many moons ago the the obviousness of it worked really well for me i loved this book i understood what it was trying to say but what do you think is it a moral book is it is it overly moral too obviously moral yeah the, the book the novel is itself a contradiction uh the, the line in the preface about there being no such thing as a moral or an immoral book it's clearly a moral book even Oscar Wilde said its its its, its flaw, its weakness, was that the morality is not subsumed enough. It's on the surface. It is too obvious. And I accept that as a criticism of the work. But you know, the the parable of the prodigal son is pretty obvious. 
and it's one of the most powerful stories ever told. Now, I think what we see here uh, is that the novel itself is like the picture of Dorian Gray, or the other way of looking at it, the picture of Dorian Gray, the thing, we might even say character within the novel because it's dynamic and changes, that the, the, the picture of Dorian Gray is itself symbolic of, of, of the morality of art that shows us ourselves. And the novel itself does the same thing. So that the novel is, if you like, akin to a metaphor for uh, the picture of Dorian Gray itself, uh, or the other way around, the picture of Dorian Gray itself is a metaphor for this particular novel, and by extension, uh, great art, great books uh, in general. Let's turn to the author, Oscar Wilde. You've edited the Ignatius Critical Editions version of The Picture of Dorian Gray. And in your introduction to that volume, the very first sentence is this, quote, It is not possible to understand the conflicting passions at the troubled heart of The Picture of Dorian Gray without understanding the conflicting passions at the heart of its troubled author, unquote. Joseph, what do you mean? My approach to reading literature is similar to my approach to reading reality in the sense that we have to uh, aspire towards objectivity, um, that we, we can't just subject reality to our own subjectiveness, because if we do that, then our own pride and prejudice will uh, will get in the way of seeing things as they are. We'll see them as we, as, as we think they are as we, or as we want them to be. So the, the, the way that I discipline myself to, to aspire towards objectivity in the reading of literature is to see it through the eyes of the most authoritative other. And the most authoritative other is the author, the authorial voice. I call it authorialism. And so you know, we, we need to see the picture Dorian Gray through the eyes of the person who was closest to it, and that's the author of the work himself. So insofar as we're able to do that, and of course there's a limitation to how much we can do that, um, then then that that um, that allows us to go deeper uh, into the novel itself and, and, and what the novel is doing and saying and showing us. Um, so that that's why I say we have to understand Oscar Wilde in order to understand the picture of Dorian Gray. What do we need to know about Oscar Wilde then to understand this novel? Well, he was a very conflicted person. You know, he had a lifelong love affair with the Catholic Church. Uh, he was almost converted, almost received the church as an undergraduate at Trinity College Dublin and then subsequently at, uh, at Magdalen College Oxford. And on both occasions, he uh, turned away from conversion because of the personal cost. His father threatened to disinherit him, for instance. So there's always this, this, this conflict between him, between what his conscience T t tells him he should be doing, and yet what his selfishness actually uh, gets him to do. So he, throughout his life, he never loses his love affair for the church. And so we see that made manifest in, in the, essentially the Christian morality of most of his work. There are, there are exceptions when he's allowed his dark alter ego, Lord Henry Watton, to get the better of him. But for the most part, in his Basil Hallward persona, he's producing beautiful moral works of art. Um, but he, you know, he, he indulges his passions, his sexual passions particularly, destructively, self-destructively, and to his ultimate uh, ruin, except that he is received into the Catholic Church on his deathbed so uh, and receives the last rites. So unlike Dorian Gray in the novel, we can believe that, that, that Oscar Wilde, uh, this, his own personal story, unlike the novel, ends happily ever after. We, we, we are permitted to believe that because of the way it, his life ends. Has pop culture and modern scholarship lost sight of this aspect of 
the story of Oscar Wilde? Yes, absolutely. And, I, and the, the problem is they, they, it's coming at the reality subjectively, uh, not objectively. They only see what they want to see. So they, they ignore the, the Christian and specifically Catholic dimension of Oscar Wilde's life uh, and philosophy and play up um, the, the decadence of his lifestyle. They make him a homosexual culture warrior, a sexual liberator, protagonist of pride. Whereas in actual fact, you know, in, in, in Oscar Wilde refers to his homosexuality as his pathology, as his sickness. Now, in many countries in modern Europe, he'd be thrown in prison for saying that. So, you know, that we, we, we really do need to be looking at the man squarely in the eye. Yeah, his dark side's absolutely there. Let's not hide that. Um, I wrote I wrote a biography of Oscar Wilde called The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, where I try to get to grips with him. He's a slippery fish. I, I, I do a, a manful job of, of of trying to get to grips with with uh, Oscar Wilde and the masks, masks he wore. Um, and basically, when you remove all the masks and, and you find the man, you find someone who is in love with Jesus Christ, but was an unfaithful lover. How did you discover Oscar Wilde and the picture of Dorian Gray yourself as a reader? Oh, that's a good question. I, I can't remember um, at what point I read the picture Dorian Gray the first time. So for me, you know, I was aware of obviously of the works of Oscar Wilde. I knew some of them. I hadn't read all of them. And I was also aware, of course, of the way that he was being used politically by the culture to, to be something which he wasn't. So, you know, that that was why you know that I decided that I was going to get to grips with the man and his life uh, and his works. And so that's why I decided to embark upon the work of researching and then subsequently writing the biography of him, because I wanted to set the record straight so that people could see him for who he is and not for what people want him to be. And one final question, what is the case for reading this book now? Does it say something to us specifically in the 2020s? Yes, in fact, in many ways, I, I find decadent literature, the, the best decadent literature, so for instance, Joris Cole-Huisman's novels, Baudelaire and Verlaine's poetry, the French decadent movement, very powerful in our age. And of course, Wilde was the, the, the leader of the English decadent movement because it shows decadence, and we live in a very decadent age, but it shows decadence as being ultimately self-destructive and destructive of the common good. Ultimately, it indulges decadence, but only as a means of showing the destructive nature of it. In our own decadent culture, uh, we need to be reminded of the destructive aspects of choosing a decadent lifestyle. Joseph Pierce, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at haymiller.com. On Twitter, my handle is at haymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.